This is a Founding Media podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Packing Taste podcast. I'm your host, Axel Brave, and this week's episode is going to be a little different. A few weeks ago, I had the honor of hosting a panel on Texas barbecue at Butcher's Ball in Brenham, Texas. This weekend-long celebration of cooking meat over flame was exciting, thrilling, informative, and of course, delicious. So instead of bringing folks into the studio, this week the studio went to the pitmasters, chefs, and journalists who represent Texas grilling and barbecue. On the panel, we included Daniel Vaughn, Texas Monthly Barbecue Editor, Ara Malkian from Harlem Roadhouse Texas Barbecue in Richmond, Texas, Aaron Smith Feggs from Feggs Barbecue in Houston, and Ben Sasani, a barbecue photographer. We did have a few microphone technical difficulties, but I think the conversation is well worth a listen as we discuss the cultural impact of barbecue and where we think it's heading into the future. To do everybody a favor, and because we've had so much barbecue today, I think we want to define what barbecue is, right? So, what Texas barbecue is, you're right, you're right. Because else this is going to last forever. But if we can uh, kind of uh, give the audience some sense of what we think Texas barbecue is. Daniel, you want to take the, the lead? You know a couple things about barbecue. Yeah, that's, a, that's a Daniel question. Yeah, well, um, often that, that question comes down to what is like traditional Texas barbecue and, and what does the term traditional mean? Um, you know, if, uh, usually, if I hear the words traditional barbecue, it, it is in reference to that is not traditional barbecue. Not so much that is traditional barbecue. Uh, but I think when most people think about traditional Texas barbecue, they think about these places, obviously the ones that have been around so long, like the, you know, the Kreitz Market, Southside Market, these places that are, that are, cooking, um, that are cooking meats, making sausages, smoking meats, serving them on butcher paper. Uh, really meat market style you know that goes back to that goes back to our uh, that goes back to where Texas barbecue came from um, or at least where a part of Texas barbecue came from were those old style meat markets and the fact that we still have some of them around is uh, you know it's, it's a great historical lesson it's it's also you know great for all us Texas barbecue fans who go, get to go eat there um, but I think if you if you want to talk about what's really traditional like from a cooking standpoint um, it's really more hill country style barbecue, cooking uh, or burning wood down to coals, uh, shoveling those coals directly underneath the meat and cooking the meat directly over top. Um, you know, the way that if you've been out to Snow's Barbecue, <clears throat> at Snow's Barbecue, the, all those flat pits that they're, they're bringing the coals in, putting them underneath the meat. I mean, if you go way back to the, I, I guess, the first big barbecues that were happening in Texas, these big community events, they were digging big trenches in the ground, burning wood down to coals, and cooking usually whole animals over top of them. But it was a direct heat style of cooking. Um, the Central Texas style that uh, has certainly become more popular than any other uh, uses an offset smoker. And as far as like the word traditional goes, that's kind of a newer invention, um, uh, you know, as opposed to those flat pits using uh, direct heat cooking. So, so there's there's no like time period of when we can trace back and. Uh, well, you, you know, when you start to define what is Texas barbecue, um, 
when we had those big community barbecues, you know, at the time, before the Civil War, after the Civil War, uh, when these community barbecues were happening, they looked just like the barbecue you would have in South Carolina or Georgia or anywhere else. The only difference was really the protein. And it wasn't that Texas was just beef country and, and uh, South Carolina was all hog country. It was literally whatever farmers and ranchers were willing to give up. You know, whatever they were willing to donate to the cause. That was the whole animals that you were going to cook for those big community barbecues. The, what, we, what we think of and define as like North Carolina barbecue, Texas barbecue, Alabama barbecue, none of that really came about until the very late 1800s, early 1900s, when it, uh, barbecue became something that started to be served in restaurants. And until it started to be served in restaurants, we really didn't even think about codifying uh, particular styles of barbecue. Yeah, so the, the whole idea around, I guess, the whole, the whole idea around, yeah, let me see here. So the whole idea around um, like sauces and that being the difference between Carolina barbecues or Texas barbecues, that's a myth or is that, do we take that into account? I mean, like, I think sauces help define regions. Um, there's very specific styles, even within the Carolinas. Like, if you accidentally say, you know, this is an East Carolina sauce, and it's not actually an East Carolina sauce, you will be called out on it, right? Like, you have to be spot on with your sauces. But I think this day and age, with the way information travels so quickly, there are, we serve Texas gold. We, it is a complete ripoff of Carolina Gold. Like we are intentionally making a sauce because we love Carolina Gold sauce, right? I think that um, it's just really hard to define barbecue by the sauces now because we're more global than that. Like that's just not the way people approach barbecue anymore. Um, I also think, you know, we'd love for the barbecue to be so good that you don't actually have to put a sauce on it, but the sauces are good too. So it's like, you don't want to like shame the sauces, right? Sauces are delicious, sides are delicious. I just think, you know, I think it used to represent regions and I think now it's more so kind of, you know, just evolved beyond that. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I'm, I'm curious, like, at, you know, at, uh, at Feed This Barbecue, you do a very untraditional- Here, grab um, this. Yeah, we'll show yeah, this. Still not working. Sorry, we're gonna, we're just gonna sacrifice this one over here. Uh, so at Fiji's Barbecue, you do a very untraditional whole hog barbecue. Uh, as far as Texas is concerned, that's something that, as far as uh, restaurant culture, hasn't really been done. And I'm curious if you know if we were to de define barbecue by sauces, do you guys serve that with what you'd think of as a Texas sauce or or a Carolina sauce? How do you serve that, and, and how do people react to that? All right, this is something we're really proud of. We serve whole hog, Carolina-style whole hog, every day we're open. And we serve it in the style and tradition of Carolina barbecue. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, Patrick's passion. We traveled around, we met, you know, a bunch of people. Rodney Scott is a huge mentor of ours. Um, and, you know, we saw how it was done, and we really like the opportunity that we have to be able to hold up those traditions. Nobody in our line knows what they're actually getting. We do so much explaining and we love it. You know, sometimes you get asked a lot of questions and it's just kind of like, it can be tedious. When we get asked questions about our whole hog, we love the opportunity to get to explain the sauce that, because we toss the sauce in, 
You know, we still offer crackling, but we really encourage everybody to do the crackling and we chop it in. Um, and those are all things we learn from our mentors in the Carolinas, um, Sam Jones, Rodney Scott. And so I hope that we, we do them proud. I hope one day they get to try it, but we are very focused on making it, you know, um, in the style of Carolina, although I'm sure it's not perfect and it's, you know, our take on it. So does that make it Texas? I don't know, but I think that um, it's important to us to be able to bring those styles to our guests, you know, to the people that come and visit with us in Greenway Plaza. We want to be able to say like, this is a really special thing. And I think whole hog is becoming more popular partly because it's, you know, information spreads faster, like I said earlier. So it's the ways to do it, the techniques are becoming, you know, more readily available. But I also think meat prices have had a huge impact on how people choose what they're going to highlight on their menu. And pork has at times been, you know, just a cheaper option. Brisket prices are constantly fluctuating. And so it makes hog and pork and other things that we can utilize, other parts of the animal, just it just makes it more of a no-brainer as a business owner. I like at my restaurant when I was trying to develop the barbecue sauce for my place, I actually found a recipe from a US Army base in Texas from the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, and I just tweaked the sauce slightly using better ingredients, and instead of water, I just add some of my coffee to it. So that was my twist on an old recipe that I found from one of the army bases in Texas. You know, my argument for the person that doesn't cook barbecue up here <laughs> is that good Texas barbecue doesn't need sauce. But if you have a good sauce, it makes it better as a whole in general, right? But I, I think if the barbecue is good, you shouldn't need sauce. You shouldn't have to drench it like you do with Carolina style or Kansas City style or whatever, what other styles of barbecue, because the barbecue we have here is so different and so good already. I, I think sauce is secondary and not something that should be poured on there before it's served. And, and again, that's, is it working? Is it working now? Still no? Okay. All right. Throw it out. Check, check. Yeah. Well, but that, that is really sort of a modern sensibility, too. The idea of, um, of Texas barbecue not needing sauce or, and, and really central Texas style specific. It, it, as, as somebody who lives in Dallas, I talk to a lot of the old timers in Dallas, people who still have barbecue joints there. And uh, a lot of them still don't even put salt on their brisket when they put it into smoke. Uh, no seasoning whatsoever. And that really goes back to those days where um, in, in Dallas, they were cooking really whole naval plates, whole beef naval plates, not even briskets, and cooking those directly over the fire, um, cooking them until they're tender enough to be able to pull the bones out, and then chopping all that meat and serving it on sandwiches. There was no such thing as a sliced brisket plate. They weren't even cooking brisket. You weren't gonna slice up that really fatty navel cut. Um, so it went into just chopped beef sandwiches. And the seasoning really came in the form of a sauce that was added afterwards. So all the seasoning that you were gonna put onto the meat came along with the sauce. So serving that barbecue without sauce would be like serving it sort of in an, in an, in an incomplete fashion. And um, you know, so 
Now with the way we cook, uh, now the way the modern day barbecue joints cook, uh, with heavy seasoning, smoke, um, you know, and trying to get that perfect bite of brisket or pork rib or whatever, you know, as it comes off the smoker, I think is the reason why you're saying that, you know, sauce isn't necessary these days. And, and to that I agree. But, um, you know, that is sort of more of a modern take on Texas barbecue as well. Okay, so you guys just made it sound like there is no traditional Texas barbecue. <laughs> so I think that'll lead us to our next question. Um, if we can talk a little bit about um, the different kinds of barbecues that are geographically located throughout Texas. Obviously, there's nothing traditional that we can pinpoint, and I think that's kind of the beauty about what we're doing here today. So, for example, like Asian-infused barbecue by the coast or German-style barbecue in the center of uh, Texas or more of a Hispanic-infused uh, barbecue. How is that separated? Who's bringing it? Um, and where can, we, where can we kind of find it? Who wants to tackle this one? I mean, I think um, history and culture play a huge part in where certain traditions of barbecue come from. And so when we are in the state of Texas and we're talking about Texas barbecue, it's a confusing question because we know there's Eastern Texas, there's Central Texas, um, you know, there's even like in the Valley, there's, you know, that's where what we know as is Texas barbecue comes from. But in your, if you're in New York and you're eating at Hometown Barbecue and they call it Texas barbecue, that's Central Texas. I mean, that's the Central Texas style of barbecue. Um, that's where the Trinity comes from. It's more of a German meat market style. Um, but when we're in Texas, there are huge areas that typically in the past have had these very distinct styles. Um, I think it becomes more muted now because you start to see just more, you know, you just, you see more people experimenting outside of what, you know, they grew up with, but, you know, and it's all history based. I look at, you know, the German style, that's German immigrants in central Texas, um, German and Czech. And if you look at Eastern Texas style, it's, you know, post civil war, um, African American, it's, you know, chopped beef, lots of sauce, and then in the valley, you know, that's where the origins of Tex-Mex barbecue come from. And those have always existed, but I think in the past they've always existed in their place. And now you start to see people kind of trying those styles across the board. And, you know, I'm from Houston. Our barbecue restaurant is in Houston, and we get asked a lot of questions about other places. You know, Blood Brothers Barbecue, they do a ton of fusion styles. And, you know, people always ask us about that. And that's, it's very natural for them to do that. Like, that's how Houston is. Houston is just a melting pot of people and, um, and of immigrants. And so it only seems natural to me that the barbecue would evolve as such. Um, and I think it's a really great way to look at barbecue as a way to kind of introduce flavors. Um, the techniques are very primal, uh, but our approach to it in this decade, I think is just really representative of where we are and, and you know, politics and history and all of that. And I think, you know, Houston is probably the most unique area of barbecue in Texas because there are, there are all of those influences in our food. Um, but that's only expanding. I mean, when you go to uh, Austin, I think is probably more of a central Texas style because they're in central Texas, but you even see more of it kind of popping up over there where it's just different influences. 
Um, but I think Daniel probably has some good responses to this one. Well, actually, I'm more curious from, from that end yeah. of the panel, uh, when you're cooking barbecue in the Houston area, do you think, do you think back to uh, what you would consider a Houston style of barbecue as, as your jumping off point? So for both of us being classically trained chefs, it's a little bit different. Like for me personally, I've cooked all over the world and I'm classically trained in French cuisine, but I love everything about Texas barbecue. So I try to stay as true as I can to it. More of the craft barbecue using better quality meats, better quality ingredients as far as the peppers that I use, they're fresh ground. Um, so we each bring our own touch to that craft barbecue that we do. And with barbecue being so popular now and everybody who is getting into it, doing the great job, like our friends from Blood Brothers, Aaron and Patrick, myself, and all the other guys, we bring our own touch to it and trying to stay true to as much of the traditional Texas barbecue as we can. And he, so what's traditional Texas barbecue? Well, what, what, well what, what, we, what we define as, you know, uh, a barbecue that doesn't necessarily need a sauce, that is, that it does have, the, the places that we love and we admire um, ourselves, the Snows, the Louis Mueller's, the, uh, all, all the other great places that we, we love to eat at ourselves and trying to stay as close as we can to that with with our touch on it. Well, and you still have those classic, even though you're a classically trained chef, um, many of the sides that you have are those classic Texas barbecue sides. Yeah, like on my place, I only have four sides. Yeah, salad, beans, yeah. none of that crazy stuff that Aaron's doing. Yeah, at my place, uh, I stay very true to, I only have four sides. I think at your place, you guys have like 11 or 12. So, but I do get crazy with my specials on a daily basis that I do doing smoked duck, lamb chops, smoked octopus, and I do get, get crazy with those sides. So that's where I get to have fun bringing my background as a fine dining chef into Texas barbecue. See, but I think with barbecue though, I think it's getting so competitive that the, the meats, the general meats, you have your briskets and beef ribs and pork ribs and all that. Everybody is on such a top notch level that you, when you go to one place or another, it's, it's kind of hard if you had a blind taste test, it's hard to tell who's who these days. Because everybody, it, there's no room to be mediocre in barbecue right now, like none at all. So what sets people aside is gonna be your sides, your sausages, your desserts and things like that. And perfect example is like Tejas. They're doing this chili relleno sausage that is just absolutely mind blown. The, you know, they're an hour and 25 minutes away from my house. The last time I went over there, I bought five or six of them just to take home to leave in the, in the fridge so I can eat them later because I don't want to drive an hour and 25 just to go eat them. You know? But you know, it's the same thing. Like when I come to, to Aaron's place, the same thing. I get, you know, I, I get a lot of sides. When I go to like Oz's place, same thing. When I go to Truth, when I go to Killens, you know, the bread pudding at Killens is just. I would rather go there for the bread pudding than almost anything else right now. It's, a, it's phenomenal, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's how you're deviating. And then there's people like Valentina's who are setting themselves completely aside from everybody doing the, te the Tex-Mex style, but they're also doing amazing barbecue and then turning into Tex-Mex. And then Blood Brothers, what they're doing with it. And then you guys, like, you know, you and Patrick. 
Um, so, I th you know, I, I think at this point, it's just getting to a point where everybody is just, I don't want to say branching off, but everybody is just finding their niche and just kind of growing it until something else becomes the standard alongside Texas Barbecue. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the idea of us talking about Tex-Mex Barbecue right now, I, I really do think in about 20 years from now, nobody will even use that term because everybody will be serving some version of it. But <clears throat> a friend of mine wrote an article about the different types of barbecue and not so much styles, but sort of the, um, uh, the place that each one of the proprietors was coming from. And rather than calling it craft barbecue, which would assume that other barbecue is not a craft, even if it's cheap, um, he uses the term high barbecue to be like this big city barbecue that we see. Folk barbecue being these like old school places that really do stick with one traditional style of cooking. And then mass barbecue, just people who are out there really just trying to make a lot of money off of barbecue. Like that's the, the Dickies, like any, any of the chain uh, barbecue places of the world, um, they, they fall within that. And you know, we certainly see a lot more of the high barbecue places being the ones that open up these days. Uh, they are, it's a very Instagram friendly style of cooking. Uh, certainly helps get the word out. Um, the, the thing that I lament is not seeing so many of those folk barbecue places uh, opening up or, or have that, um, places opening up that have that sort of goal in mind. You know, where it's a place that we're just gonna be cooking this really simple uh, local style of barbecue. But um, you were talking about Valentina's and it made me think like, yeah, that Tex-Mex style of barbecue that we see from places like Valentina's or 2M or a number of places now around the state, it's not a new style of cooking. It's really what all of these people who open these places would say that's what they ate in their backyard. Um, a lot of them from San Antonio as well. Like, if you were gonna be cooking at home, if we were gonna cook barbecue at home, this is the way it was gonna be served, this is the way we were gonna eat it. I think just the way now that it's being served in the restaurants, that's the new thing. The fact that it's now being served in restaurants, food trucks, and uh, maybe that is like a new type of folk barbecue. You know, one person that I forgot is Don. I don't know if he's in here or not, but you know, that's another branch that it's going into because Don is Asian, he's Vietnamese, and he's mixing Texas-style barbecue with Vietnamese food, so he's putting Texas-style brisket inside the bowl of pho that you eat at any pho place with just very mediocre brisket, and it is absolute, to me, it's phenomenal. Because in Houston, pho phenomenal. Oh, God. That's so cheesy. Um, <laughs> no, okay. So um, between all these different cultures that we're talking about and all the people that are here, what are some uh, um, like key differences that we see among Asian barbecue, Latin barbecue, you know, um, are the cuts very different? Are the, it's, not the it's not the sauces, obviously. I, I think, yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the individual establishment as like, I choose to use very specific brand and they're all hand selected for me. Like I use Snake River Farm briskets, beef ribs, my pork ribs are all hand selected for me. Uh, same with the pork butt. So I'm, I have a, advantage that because of my fine dining background and I have a relationship with a lot of these farms and ranchers that I can leverage that relationship to get that product consistently. So I choose to go that route because for me it's all about the quality of the meat and the type of wood that I use to smoke my meats. I'm 
outside of very true, I think I'm one of the very few guys who uses French oak wine barrels after they've been retired, and that's what I smoke my meats with. So. But you said that that's, that's your big advantage is a lot of the relationships you have with your meat purveyors. Um, I would argue your biggest advantage actually is having a, um, having a population close enough to you, willing enough to come eat with you, and willing to spend, enough, spend that type of money to be able to get that, that style That's of true, that too, yeah. Because it's not for everybody, and not everybody can afford to spend $20 a pound for brisket or spend $23 a pound for a beef rib when each beef rib is pound and a half to almost two pounds. So that's a big chunk of money to spend on a beef rib. Well, yeah, I, I just went to Smokeaholics Barbecue in Fort Worth, and um, they've got rib tips on the menu. Uh -huh. And they have all the other craft barbecue, sorry, all the other high barbecue. High barbecue. Uh, you know, they have the trays and the sliced brisket and the beautiful barbecue, but they're serving rib tips as well, which is more of a historically black uh, barbecue. And I asked him about it, about why he's serving that, if that's something that he grew up eating, and he said, really, it's just it's so that I can serve my community. It's so that I can bring people in from outside who are driving 30 minutes or an hour to come eat my barbecue. But the people in the neighborhood um, can come by and actually get a good meal uh, for a cheaper price. And I guess that, that kind of goes back to what the or where Texas barbecue originally came from, you know, using those cheaper cuts to make something good out of them. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to see that come in full circle um okay and so i guess looking at today um what cultures would you guys say have had the most impact on texas barbecue to get a little heated like has is it latin is it asian what what has had the most influence in today's texas barbecue I'll start this one. Yeah. Uh -huh. I'll well, start this one. Go ahead. You know, living in Houston, I think it's, like Aaron said, it's just such a melting pot of everything in Houston, is that every food genre in Houston has a melting pot of another genre in it, for example. Every, everything does, right? So you see fusions of everything with everything else. So I think barbecue right now, in general, in Houston, is going through a lot of fusions. So you see, for example, Blood Brothers again, bringing them up. Let's see Don, what he's doing with it. You see, you know, um, like Eddie O, who's doing, who's doing Tex-Mex. Um, JQ out there doing Tex-Mex. So, uh, you know, I don't want to say that that's driving the rest of Texas, but I just see it in my hometown, like in Houston. That's becoming the norm to see fusion because there's so many other barbecue places you can go to. You can go to Killen's, you can go to Corkscrew. You can go to, or you can get the same but, thing on every corner of the city. But but it, but it sounds like that's always been the case in Texas. Then it this, has this multicultural <clears throat> barbecue structure that we have here. But I think I think that the, you know, in the traditional sense of barbecue that we know has become so saturated that that people are doing what they're doing, like what Daniel said, is they're making stuff that they used to make in their backyard and is catching on, right? So then the next person goes, well, maybe I can do this. So they push it a little bit more forward, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more. And then next thing you know, you have Asian fusion, then you have, you know, Middle Eastern fusion, then you have this, then you have this, and you have, you're putting, you know, Middle Eastern spices in your food. So it's just, it's, for me, it's a melting pot, and I enjoy it, you know. But I, I, I haven't been to many other Dallas places, so I don't know. But I know in Austin, 
I, I don't feel like Austin is the same style of fusion as it is in Houston because Houston is just such a huge melting pot that it, it's, I think it's advantageous for us to be in Houston just because we see everything, you know? For me, as not being originally from Texas, I know I, know I look like a Texan, but um, I've been on, I've lived on every continent in the world and every culture, every race has some form or some way of cooking with live fire and smoke. I think that's, it's such a comfort food because it's so primal, uh, cooking with live fire and smoke and, and everybody can identify with. So I think that's why a lot of people, when they think about Texas, they think about beef country and they think about the cowboys and, and the cattle runs and uh, everybody loves Texas. You go anywhere in the world, some people may not like Americans in general, but they love Texas. So having lived all over the world and seen the different styles of cooking with live fire, I mean, I've hung out with the Bedouins in, uh, in the desert that they do whole camel in the, cooking it in the sand with smoke and charcoal and fire. So that's amazing to see. And then seeing the Texas style of barbecue, I think it, it's something that it, it will evolve. We will always have the barbecue for the masses, the high barbecue as it's evolving with every pit master and every restaurateur who is doing the barbecue and putting their touch on it. Um, I personally am a fan of the whole smoking with live fire and cooking the primal cuts until it's nice and tender, slow, low, and then letting it just speak for itself. Do you want to add anything there? I'm sorry, I don't even remember the original question. <laughs> <laughs> what group or region has been the most influential? Oh, I think it's too hard to say because each, I think throughout history, like the techniques have been building on top of themselves and what we do now is not like revolutionary. Um, everything we're doing has been built on the techniques that have been used for hundreds of years, right? We might be adding different spices, we might be serving it with a different sauce, um, but those techniques are like the fundamentals and it would be impossible to point out one and say, you know, the Germans were more influential than, you know, the, the African-Americans, I just don't think you can do that. I think it's all led to where we are now and they are equally important. So th this can lead on to our next question, which... Well, I, I, okay. I have an answer too, because I do have one. Uh, and it's, uh, it's actually not one group, it's one person and it's Aaron Franklin. Yes. And I know that it, that sounds like maybe a tired answer, but there is no pit master in Texas who's been more influential in the way that we eat barbecue now, 10 years after Franklin Barbecue first opened, and especially not the way that Texas barbecue outside of Texas, uh, around the country and around the world is interpreted and, uh, and sort of redone. Um, Nobody has been more influential in spreading that word than Aaron Franklin. Agree, there's like pre-Aaron and post-Aaron, and it yeah, there, is there a really clear is. difference yeah. in not just how people cook, but I think how the barbecue community is received, like how we as restaurants are able to thrive, it is because of Franklin Barbecue. 
Uh, 100%. And, you know, Pat, Patrick's always saying, well, like, pre-Aaron or post-Aaron, like, there's a timeline, and you can base it on before people knew who Aaron Franklin was. And even the places who are doing different sorts of uh, barbecue fusion, if, if that's what you want to call it, like, their base of their menu is still reflective yeah. of what Franklin Barbecue was doing, you know, when they opened 10 years ago. I, I would 100% agree. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Up here. Yeah. No, no. I mean, Aaron did put a standard out there because he he really has been the number one influencer of Texas barbecue, right? Um, consistency, the equipment that he uses, the offset smoker. I don't think that many people were using an offset smoker before him. It, it was either the traditional brick over direct fire and smoke, and that is Aaron is the one who influenced using a offset smoker using uh, 500 and 1,000 gallon propane tanks. You know, the growing up in Austin, if you didn't want to drive, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes away to Lockhart to have before Aaron, you know, you went to Rudy's, right? Yeah. Because that was the best chain out there, and to this day. Any, I will defend Rudy's as the best chain just because, not because their food is the best, obviously it's not, but they're the most consistent well, for one, out, it's okay. Buy, 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 Darren walked away because of Rudy's. Bye, Darren. Anyway, Rudy's is the most consistent from one point to another point because, I mean, I go out to West Texas all the time. And I stop at the one in Del Rio, and it tastes exactly the same one as I, that I eat in Clear Lake. It's the same one that I eat in Austin. So, I mean, you know, I'll defend them. Some people like it. Some people don't. But I think they're the best chain. But before that, I mean, you go over there, and t people saw them as they were growing as the barbecue of Texas because they were set up in a gas station. There was this. You know, they, they look Texas, you know. And... Um, but then when you go to Lockhart, when you go to Wayne Mueller's place, and you see one room is green, the other room used to be green, um, then you understand the history behind it. And, uh, you know, after Aaron, everything has become more, what's the word, modern, I guess? Restaurants are nicer, restaurants are more high-end, restaurants are more, you know, cleaner, they're better set up. They still feel like Texas, but you're not going to get them to duplicate what Coit's Market looks like or what Black's, Mar or Black's and, and Lockhart looks like. Um, so it's, it's the new era, and it's the new look of barbecue, I think, because it's what Aaron brought on. Well, I think we all thank Aaron for all that then. Um, I, I agree. Yeah. So Thanks, Daniel. I guess we have, we have two more questions till we open up the floor, if anybody, if anybody has questions. But how, how important is sourcing your meat? Because people think, oh, I'll just buy a brisket, smoke it for hours and hours and hours, and it'll turn out the same. But how are, are we becoming more interested in where we're getting our meat, what, cow, what type of cow it is, where we get it? Well, some panelists and some, some restaurant owners might say that they are paying a lot of attention, but I'd say, I'd say statewide, um, people say they are but, or say they'd like to, but everybody's just buying commodity beef. Like there's a few places out there that, that are, are paying real good attention to the beef they're buying, but by and large, it's, it's commodity beef. Um, there might be certainly more of, a, uh, more of an emphasis on higher quality commodity beef, prime grade beef, 
uh, upper choice grade beef, um, and still nobody seems to care about the quality of their pork, or not many seem to care about the quality of their pork either. So, um, yeah, I mean, the idea is always there that we should be eating locally and more uh, environmentally friendly raised animals and hormone-free, antibiotic-free beef, but um, I think you guys might have figured out the fact that there's only so much of that to go around these days. It's yeah, it's in short supply, so it's kind of hard. And also, it makes it cost prohibitive to get all organic, all local. Uh, makes it a lot more difficult. I mean, if you're doing barbecue at home, it's one thing to go spend $100 on one brisket to cook it at home. When, when you're doing 100 briskets a week, it's a little bit different story, and you want every single one to come out the same. So, You know, one, one story that I'll, I'll add to all this is, you know, Will Buckman at Corkscrew. You know, I hear stories, I document the pictures, and I hear the stories, right? And uh, when he told me the story, he goes, make sure you, ma you put that it was 2013 so Daniel doesn't read it and think I'm still doing this. So in 2013, when he made Daniel's top 10 list, was he top 10 in 2013? 2013, top 50. Top 50 for Corkscrew? 2017. Top 10. So Corkscrew made the top 50 list in 2013 using Walmart briskets. So that says a lot in the techniques and the person that's cooking the meat, right? Well, obviously now he's a lot bigger and he's a lot more organized and he's using, you know, better grade meat and better, you know, better barbecue, new place, so on and so forth. But I mean, to me, it was fascinating that he was using Walmart grade brisket. It was probably the best brisket that Walmart sold, but it's still Walmart brisket. Um, and he still made the list. So it says a lot about the person cooking it too, so. I, I think, think that has a lot to do with it. I think the wholesome answer everybody wants to hear is that, you know, we go and hug the ranchers every day and they hand us our briskets. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there's, that would be great. That's not reality. As a business owner, I can tell you the most important things to us are consistency of product. And there is a very valuable relationship between you and your vendors. And if not your vendors, between you and your ranchers, we, we always purchase our meats through our vendors. So we like to have a very good relationship with our vendors so that if products start coming in and our yield changes substantially, you know, we can ask them, why is this happening? And they have the ability to reach out to the ranchers and, and get an answer. Or you know, we might switch our product in order to keep that consistency because the most important thing to us is having a consistent product on your plate every day. And so that means being able to pivot when the products change, when the quality changes throughout the year, when fat percentages change because it's hotter and they're panting more outside. Um, we wanna make sure that what we're cooking every day is a similar product. So it's important to know your product. Um, it's important to recognize when your product starts changing on you because these are living beings and so they certainly fluctuate over time. Um, and it's, it's important for us, for our cooks, you know, when they, we give them an instruction on how to cook something and if the meat is fattier than usual or larger than usual, 
what we've taught them might not be status quo, right? They might have to pivot, they might have to change, you know, the way they handle the briskets. And so it's just really important that we're able to provide as consistent a product as possible. And that means being able to speak to your vendor, use different products from time to time. Um, it's not always about the specific, like your loyalty towards a specific ranch might actually hurt you, but being loyal to the industry as a whole, I think is sustainable for everybody. Okay, um, last question that I have for you guys, and then we're gonna open the floor for whoever wants to ask their own questions, but can one make a bad barbecue, and what the hell does that look like? A bad barbecue. That picture that you commented on. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I, <clears throat> if I ever hear somebody tell me um, there's no such thing as bad barbecue, the simple answer to that is you haven't eaten enough barbecue. Or just let me cook it. I'll, I'll, I'll show you how bad barbecue looks. We've all made bad barbecue. <laughs> I made bad barbecue, then I'll just come to your place and eat it. We got to start somewhere. <laughs> you want to add something? No, I agree with Danny. Do we have time for questions? Okay. All right. Yeah, so we have time for two questions. Does anybody want to ask something? Yes. Yeah. Do we have a mic or can she come up here? Just say it and we'll. Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, I am a health coach and also a um, wellness chef. And I am, I am one of those people that I live in Texas City and I will travel to Houston to get my eggs and my beef. I am one that I guess I'm lucky because it's just me and mom, but the quality of your food does make a difference. I'm not here to preach or to say anyone's wrong. I'm just bringing up a very valid point. I am one that I will gladly pay $15, $20 for a burger if it's top quality. And one of the reasons I don't eat out often is because when I eat out, because of all the cheap grade ingredients, I get sick. So I'm, in, I'm here to invite, first of all, to thank you because I'm immensely grateful just by looking yeah. at the pictures, at the work that you guys do in order to get meat on our table. I want to thank you on my behalf. I, I do keto and I've got to have protein. If not, I will get very sick. But I also love the fact that you guys take the time to raise the animals. So my question is, are you guys looking to purchase and get more involved with sustainable beef and lamb or whatever you... So here's the problem with doing sustainable and local products. Uh, it's good if you're doing it at home. I absolutely encourage it. In a restaurant commercial setting, it is absolutely not sustainable. We cannot stay in business if we pay $10, $12 a pound for locally grown cattle that is hormone-free. I mean, it's just no one's going to come into a restaurant and pay $40 for a pound of brisket. It's just not going to happen. And we can't stay in business that way. I mean, we can be careful about, and, and I'm a restaurateur. This is my 15th restaurant I've done across the U.S. So I'm very careful, and I'm, again, fortunate to have a personal relationship with the ranch that I get my meats from. But to use 100% local organic meat in a commercial setting, it's not economically viable. We cannot stay in business doing that. 
No one's going to come out. We cannot feed. There's, it's a very small market that people will pay that high dollar value. Okay, people are on a budget. So when they go out and eat, they're looking for a specific price range. I mean, my brisket is $20 a pound, and people still complain that, oh, his prices are too high. They love the flavor. They love the product. But to them, even at $20 is high. And that's, and I'm lower than some. Yeah. I think something that is happening in barbecue right now that helps to really maintain that sustainability in our industry is we're using new cuts. You're going to see tri-tip more often. You're going to see hanger steak more often. Um, it solves a number of issues that plague our industry, one of them being there's only so much brisket produced from one cow, right? And if brisket is at a demand that it's at right now, prices are only going to go up. It's also what happens to the rest of the meat. The ranchers are sitting on all this product that they cannot get rid of, and then they say, hey, we're not, you know, we're just going to raise our prices on brisket until you guys are kind of forced to use these other products. And you see it more and more now where people are using these other cuts, we're using more of the animal, you're seeing more whole hog used, and those are some really critical steps um, that help us to become a more sustainable industry. I also think as somebody who, you know, has seen the amount of effort that goes into cooking a brisket, tri-tip is a more sustainable product from a human standpoint. It takes much less time to cook, um, so we're asking less of our pitmasters we're burning less wood to produce it. Um, those are the types of things that our industry is kind of leaning towards, and the market has been very receptive. I think people really like the idea of these other cuts. It's something new. And so as long as that is maintained, I think some of that sustainability is going to kind of naturally happen um, because briskets take, you know, on average 16 hours. Um, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of wood. And that's really one part of this massive animal. And if our demand is only for that one part, um, w as a country, we will never be able to keep up. All right, we have time for one more question. Question? All right. So far, you talked a lot about the future with maybe the Tex-Mex not being called Tex-Mex in the future. Closer, well, closer, closer, closer. One thing that I would like to ask is, uh, the non-protein constituents in live fire and smoke cooking. And I'm not just talking about, oh, people doing creative sides, but where Closer. they're taking things like the beverages, the, uh, the desserts, and like elote or other, uh, other things that uh, on the vegetable side that can be smoked. Well, where is the, the future for that? Right, at my restaurant, I have a relationship with a local mushroom grower, so I'll actually smoke mushrooms. Uh, occasionally, like once or twice a month, I do a smoked mushroom. So that's my way of going outside the box and doing sm some vegetables that are smoked that I will do that. I think this is a really market-driven answer because we are in a very competitive industry. There is so much good barbecue. As both of these gentlemen have said earlier, you can get a, an amazing bite of brisket at dozens of places in many cities in Texas, right? Yep. So the only way you're gonna differentiate yourself is through the other services you, you provide. And I think that has a lot to do with how, how you round out your menu. 
from a food standpoint, which would include sides, which would include desserts. I think people want to be taken care of, so you're seeing more full service. Um, it's not always going to be the cafeteria-style stand-in-line restaurant. Now you might sit at your table and order your barbecue plate, right? And cocktails, beers, wines. It's just an, it's another way to elevate your product and your restaurant so that you are appealing to a broader audience because that is how you stay competitive and that is how you stay in business. And there is always going to be a nostalgic place for the restaurants that don't have all of that, but not everybody can be that. Not everybody can be where you have to do all the work yourself. You, if you want to be competitive, you have to offer a multitude of other things and they have to be top quality. And I think there's a different breed of people that get into barbecue, right? You have people that are self-taught that get in and do amazing stuff. And then you have people like these two right here who are from the chef world, like they're classically trained. They come in understanding barbecue, but what they do is they add amazing sides because that's what they knew before already. So, you know, when you go and you have the Brussels sprouts in Aaron's place, like, to me, that's phenomenal. That's an amazing side, you know? Um, and, I, and I enjoy that stuff. The same thing with Ara's place. You know, I went over there and we had the duck. Like, the duck was... Amazing. So I think it's just how you differentiate yourself other than the normal things that you can get anywhere else that at this point, it's pretty much on the same level. Just a matter of a few points here and there, you know? And Packy, I'm with you. That uh, I'd love to see more like main course vegetables, um, you know, using smoke or live fire cooking. And that's just something I'm not seeing very much of. Unfortunately, like the... Uh, the vegan barbecue that I'm seeing or vegetarian barbecue goes straight towards vegetable proteins and trying to make them look like a rib or trying to make them slice like a brisket. Um, I'd love to see some, you know, wood-fired carrots, um, more smoked mushrooms, um, you know, smoke. If you've been, never smoked and fried a whole head of cauliflower, it's a beautiful thing. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see more things like that on, uh, on barbecue joint menus. I'm, I'm just not seeing them. Yeah, well, I, I think you guys are all on the money there. I think more restaurants nowadays are starting to add more vegetables and kind of, like you said, the smoked cauliflower. Don't try to make vegetables look like meat. Yeah, just recognize Simple, that they're right? different things. I think we grilled a ton of vegetables today. But anyways, I want to thank you guys so much, so, so much for coming on the panel. And I want to thank the audience for coming to listen to you guys. If we can get a round of applause for everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And once again, we have Erin over here, lovely Erin. You guys can find her in uh, Houston. We have Ara over here, Chef Ara, owner of Harlem Road, Texas Barbecue. We got Ben, our boy Ben, who's a master photographer. Where can we follow you? Barbecue Confessional. And then we have a maestro, Daniel Vaughn, the Texas Monthly Barbecue Editor. Thank you guys very much for coming. Thanks again to Butcher's Ball for letting me record the conversation and to all of my guests. We have put links in the show notes to the, all the guests' information and socials. Thanks for listening. I would also really appreciate if you guys hit subscribe, like, follow, and share so we can get this podcast to as many listeners as possible. Thanks again. Thanks again.